The date is August 21st, 1998, and we're watching Blade. Welcome to I Used to Like This One. Hello and welcome to I Used to Like This One, the show where we take a look back at movies we remember fondly from our childhood and attempt to look past the nostalgia to see if they still hold up. My name is Sean Wells, and with me is the Blade to my Abraham Whistler. Wow, I got top billing. I'm Colin Stewart. <laughs> you bet you did. So we're celebrating Black History Month. The four episodes that we release in the month of February are featuring black leads just to highlight do something a little bit differently so this week we are looking at blade and we decided we wanted to bring in a special guest so we have with us the host of the frankfully honest podcast which is a fun little short format podcast that i suggest everyone goes and checks out uh frank driscoll frank welcome thank you sean thank you colin it's great to be here I mean that. <laughs> you, it's, it's, glad to have you. Do you want to do your uh, usual introduction to your own podcast? Do your little throat clear and mic tap? Just uh, oh yes, uh, I do that for good luck. Yeah, okay. I do that for, because my desk is wooden here, so I want to do it for good luck. So okay, <clears throat> right on. <laughs> Hope that brings us some good vibes here. Hope <laughs> <going> well. <laughs> So, Frank, we're talking Blade, and when I reached out to you, you said you have never seen Blade, but you are a big fan of movies, and you are a big fan of The the Family Guy, which is something that I definitely appreciate. But, yeah, Blade, you've never seen it. Uh, no, no, I have not seen it once. I know of it, and uh, and my brother has seen it. And I, I, I didn't know that much about it. I knew it was a, a superhero, Marvel, all that stuff. And, well, it's kind of hard for me to see it when I was young, because I was... I was about a month old when it came out, so, <laughs> but it was that. <laughs> but no, I uh, I did have a heck of a time trying to watch it, though, because my brother told me it was available on HBO Max, which it is not. Be okay. And he claims he saw it there, <laughs> yeah. so I coughed, up, I coughed up a couple dollars to watch it. And, oh, uh, no. I, I, it didn't matter to me. <laughs> well, well, about 20 minutes of my time. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this week we are looking back at August 1998 when the movies and theaters were wrongfully accused, Dance With Me, Pocahontas 2 Journey to a New World, Air Bud Golden Receiver, and of course, our movie for today, Blade, which earned $155 million on a $45 million budget. That must have been a week, a week weekend at the box office. That's a weird lineup, yeah. <laughs> and as I've always, yeah, I've, like, I know I've heard of Air Bud, but that could be one of probably like 13 sequels so. yeah, <laughs> golden receiver is for sure a sequel because the original one was just air bud I, I don't know which sequel this is like you said and pocahontas yeah, too like yeah <laughs> yeah i didn't realize that pocahontas 2 had been in theaters i just would have assumed that was a direct to video yeah so did i yeah that one surprised me as well same here yeah well, anyways, as always, just so you're aware, there will be spoilers going forward. So if you don't want Blade, which again, it came out in 1998 and and Frank was only a month old. So, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, statute of limitations is out on this one. But again, if you don't want it to be ruined for you, hit pause, go watch it, then come back and hear what we have to say. So the tagline that appears on the poster for this movie is the power of an immortal, the soul of a human. The heart of a hero. Wow, I like that. 
Yeah. But that may not be the best description of this movie. Interesting hearing the heart part. The heart, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd li- I, li- I like that so much that I'd kind of like to have it put on my tombstone when I die. <laughs> <laughs> but that may not be the best description of this movie, so let's go to Colin for a 60-second synopsis. All right, here we go. They call him the Daywalker. Blade is a half-man, half-vampire, full ass-kicker whose life mission is to rid the world of nightclubbing vampires. When Deacon Frost leader of the sexy vampire posse, uncovers an ancient <laughs> prophecy that will allow him to rid the world of Blade, the close-minded cabal of pure-blood vampires who despise him, and humanity in general, while also turning him into an all-powerful blood god. It's up to Blade, his old pal Whistler, and their new friend, Dr. Karen Jensen, to save the day by slicing, burning, and exploding any vampire that gets in their way. That is your 60-second synopsis. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah, I know for me, uh, like with this movie, I I was just over 18 when this movie came out. And I remember seeing this one in theaters and being excited by the superhero movie that wasn't a superhero movie. And, and it was a it was a really neat departure from something like Spider-Man or even the Batman movies weren't quite as dark as Blade. Colin, this for you, I know you mentioned in our demolition man episode that this was the reason that you watched demolition man because you loved wesley snipes so much so what is your history with blade yeah so i'm just trying to do the math here blade came out 23 years ago ish so i would have been 12 yeah which sound, which actually sounds about right because i would say blade and i mean it's well trod on this podcast that i love vampires and all things to do with vampires yeah so I would have loved this movie regardless, but Blade, to my memory, is one of the first movies that I would say was my movie. Like, it's one of the first movies that I can remember watching that I thought it looked cool and I watched it and I loved it. It wasn't a movie that previous to that, most of the movies I liked were movies that, you know, my parents watched or my mom, like, kind of turned me on to and that kind of stuff. Okay, so. Yeah. So that I, I would say that kind of sums up my relationship to Blade is that it was one of the first movies that kind of encapsulated what my taste in movies were. Okay. Frank, have you ever seen any of the sequels or like it, this is your first experience with Blade at all? This is my first experience. Yeah, okay. I, I, I found out there were sequels after I watched the movie. Yeah. And I learned something very interesting about the sequels involving Chris Christopherson. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you, if you and those, I was like, "Man, he no! How did that happen?" Yeah, if if yeah. you read those before you watch the movie, it's like, well, it's like now I have to watch it now. Alert. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Blade Blade Two is pretty sweet. It's directed by Guillermo del Toro, so that, that really makes it. Yeah, that, it's it's pretty good as well. I like Blade. I like Blade Trinity a lot. I do too. Like Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, that, that was. When Ryan Reynolds was in that, that was the character that I wanted him to be in Wolverine. You yeah, know? for sure. Yeah. And that that was kind of, I think, I honestly feel that Ryan Reynolds owes a lot of his career to Blade Trinity. Quite possibly. Even though it wasn't critically all that well received, it definitely was the first real big departure from him being just like the comedy van wilder, van wilder type yeah. movies that he was doing before yeah That's right. so. he was created into a bona fide action star at this point yeah like without blade trinity there's no deadpool for yeah. sure i i did read about blade trinity and i read that uh poor old wesley didn't like a lot of things that were in the script and according to ryan yeah. reynolds he spent a lot of his time in his trailer getting high on weed oh, okay. which yeah. 
who knows may have affected the movie but <laughs> but I, is, I thought uh, that was interesting when i read it yeah yeah there there is a scene in blade trinity if you watch it where his eyes look weird and that's because i can't remember what part of the movie it is but i there was a point where Wesley Snipes was so discontent with how things were going that he refused to open his eyes while they were filming. Okay. So they, they so they filmed it anyways and then had to go back and use computer generation to put like fake open eyes <laughs> oh, on his wow. face. <laughs> wow. I uh, see, yeah. I mean I thought I thought you were gonna piggyback on Frank's stoner comment and gonna say that you look at That's his what eyes I thought and too. you can tell he's so baked man like his <laughs> eyes are red they're <laughs> well i mean maybe maybe that's why he didn't open his eyes he was just so done but... <laughs> yeah on the whole i love the blade trilogy i think yeah. i think it doesn't get as much credit as it deserves yeah and i am wondering what the remake is going to be like because wesley snipes is so associated with blade Mm-hmm. They did make a uh, TV show with a different actor. That's true. Yes, I remember that. I'm trying to remember when it ran. It was probably like in the early 2000s. That re- it was basically along the same lines of the of the movies, but never really yeah. caught the popularity of the at least the first two movies. So, oh, yeah, I I found it right here. I actually have because I have my my tablet with all my notes on it from the movie. I just found this aired on Spike in 2006. Uh, Sticky yeah. Fingers played Blade. <laughs> Yeah, it uh, lasted 13 episodes. Which is funny because, like, having someone like Sticky Fingers playing Blade, because I read that LL Cool J was actually in the running to play Blade in this movie. And that would have been, like, fucking bonkers, man. Like, <laughs> I, I kind of like some of the stuff LL Cool J does, but I mean. You know, just he's not Blade. He's not Blade. I think I think he would have had a good look, but he doesn't have. He wouldn't have had the martial arts no, prowess of Wes- of yeah. Wesley Snipes. That's true. How well do you know the source material, Colin? Have you ever read the Blade comic? I haven't dug deep on Blade in the comics. I've read I've read some comics, mostly that just feature Blade. Okay, but Bl- Blade's kind of one of those ones. He's never really had a full-on ongoing series that la- that has lasted for any amount of time. Okay. He kind of, he kind of just has a pe- like I th- I'm trying to remember when his first appearance was, but it was like probably in the 70s or 80s at some point. Yeah, I think I read 70s somewhere. Yeah, and then uh. from from the time that I've been collecting comics, he's mostly only appeared in cameos and then the occasional mini series, but rarely ever a uh, I think he had a brief ongoing series in around 2014 that only lasted 12 to 13 issues. So, okay, he's just, he's just unfortunately, even though the movies are so awesome, he's not a character that has ever really been able to break into the mainstream. No, he's not a very mainstream character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is unfor- like not to not to take anything against Chadwick Boseman, but I always like when he uh, passed away. I always people would always thought like, oh, he was the first black superhero. And I always felt he's great and he's awesome. And I love Black Panther and I love Chadwick Boseman and he's awesome. But I, I was always kind of like, but what about Blade? Like he, people, people don't even think of him as a superhero. Yeah. So. What about Blade? What about, isn't Spawn black? Spawn is black. Yeah. Yeah. And that came out before Blade. That was 97, that was 90. I think. Yeah. And, and then what about Meteor Man? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. How could how could we forget? Maybe maybe we should just scrap this whole episode and do media. <laughs> oh, and also, um, oh, yeah. wasn't the Green Lantern black at one point? Well, in the yeah, comics, though, yeah. Well, yeah. 
I think uh, they, yeah, 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 they I see were specifically mean. talking probably filmed black Superman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I mean, Hitchcock yeah. was after this, so. <laughs> Hancock. Hancock. What about Steel? The, the oh, Sha- yeah, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> oh, yeah. I bet, I bet that predates Blade. That, that had to be like 96 ish. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, All right. You got let's me. Stop putting it off. Let's, let's do Blade here. <laughs> directed by Stephen Norrington, who has only three other directing credits League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Death Machine, and The Last Minute. He does also have several special effects credits. It's produced by, well, there are actually 10 producers listed. We've got Avi Arad and Stan Lee, of course, because it's a Marvel product. But from what I can tell, the three main ones are Wesley Snipes who was also a producer on the big hit, all the Blade movies, Art of War, Undisputed. Basically, other than the big hit, it's just stuff that he stars in. It's also produced by Peter Frankfurt, who uh, is a producer on The Boys, Juice, Lethal Weapon 2, all the Blade movies, and Robert Engelman, who is a producer on Mortal Kombat, The Mask, Mystery Men, Little Nicky, from Justin to Kelly. And it's written by David S. Goyer, who is the creator of shows like Krypton, Constantine, and the Blade series. But David Goyer also has consecutively some of the greatest writing credits and some of the worst. Like, he wrote all the Blade movies and Jumper and all the Christopher Nolan, Christian Bale, Batman movies. But then he's also the writer on Man of Steel and Batman v Superman and Ghost Rider 2 and Terminator Dark Fate. And Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., which we have mentioned before, is a David Hasselhoff movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I used to rip David Goyer a lot for Man of Steel. Yeah. But then I heard he, he did an episode of the Nerdist podcast, which I recommend anybody who has beef with Man of Steel listen to, where I felt like he actually laid, laid out why it is the way it is pretty good. It was, a, it was a good defense of where he's coming from that I appreciated, so... Yeah. I'm just I'm going to I'm going to give him a pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so we open the movie on Sound of Thunder rumbling and the black screen with red letters. We're told it's 1967 and we watch as a pregnant woman is wheeled into an operating room bleeding from the neck. Eventually, we will find out she was attacked by a vampire causing her to go into premature labor. Doctors are able to save her baby with an emergency C-section. But the woman dies of an unknown affection. A last-minute shot of a wallet she drops shows that her name is Vanessa Brooks. Of course, I guess technically we're left to assume that she's dead at this point. <laughs> right. Yeah. At least that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's the first time watching, I bet. The scene switches to <laughs> now with weird high-speech footage of the city turning from day to night. What city is this? I'm pretty sure it's New York. I mean, well... If it, that's what I yeah, thought. If it's based on the comics, I know that Blade is usually around New York, so I just I just kind of assumed it was New York. Yeah. Okay. It, it looked just like it to me, or at least I thought it was. Yeah. See, and I I thought maybe it was like L.A. or something, but okay. then but then at the point where they kill the one vampire with the sunrise, that would mean that the sun is rising in the west. Yeah. So at one point, I saw a calendar set to November, so it's definitely got to be somewhere warm though right like something that's year-round warm if there's a november calendar hmm. new york would be snowier yeah yeah I, I did read something and just i didn't notice this in the movie when i watched it but apparently blade is reading a new orleans map at some point so, hmm. uh, 
So it's some ambiguous city, I guess. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was going to say. America Town. Yeah. America, America Town. Town. <laughs> America Town, USA. Yep. <laughs> the city I of Townsville. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I was trying to remember uh, the cop. I didn't. I didn't take a look at what his patches oh, were. Oh yeah. I just assumed. I just assumed it was New York, but Damn. yeah, that would be the clearest oh, tell. Man. Well, we are following a couple cruising around in their car. It becomes pretty clear right away that they're they've probably only just met, and they're all horned up. Like she grabs his crotch, and he says, "That's my heat seeker." <laughs> the guy here, kind of inconsequential is credited though as heat seeking dennis which i thought was hilarious i do remember this actor kenny johnson from an episode of smallville though that's the only thing that i really know him from but he he doesn't matter anyway in the overall story the woman is a bit more important this is raquel played by tracy lords best known as a porn actress but has done some legitimate movies too like crybaby and Zach and Miri make a porno. TV series like EastEnders, video game voice work. She actually has a lot of video game voice work. But like, even when you look at her IMD, most of her non-porno stuff still seems like almost porn. <laughs> so so the, the two of them pull up to a building and we are taken inside through a fucked up warehouse slash slaughterhouse type area with a constant running commentary from Heat Seeking Dennis about what is this place? Where are we? What the fuck was that? They make their way through to a guarded door in the back, are let in and enter an underground rave in progress, a, a rave club owned by Deacon Frost. We've got a DJ and sweaty people dancing and bearded Quinn over on a couch getting blown. This is played by Donald Log, uh, Log, Log. Is it Log? Donald yeah. Log, who was in Ghost Rider, Max Payne Three, Three Ninjas, Knuckle Up, recurring roles on Vikings, Copper, Son of Anarchy, Life, ER, and I mean, of course, we're on a comic book movie podcast right now. He was Harvey on Gotham, so I imagine a lot of people that like Blade probably watch Gotham at some point. Heat-seeking Dennis quickly gets separated from his date. I, I do like that she gives him her jacket and he just tosses it aside. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't know what to do with it either. And he is left to wander the dance floor and try to fit in, which he very clearly doesn't. Everyone seems aggressive towards him. Raquel, meanwhile, has found her lady vampire friend Mercury, who is played by Argyle Jover, who, when you look at her IMDb, you see a lot of Spanish and French films with posters that have a lot of film festival stamps on them you know palm doors and shit you know oh, wow. <laughs> so she was also an imposter the girl with the dragon tattoo the daniel craig one and vampires lost muertos which i found interesting that she was in another vampire movie <laughs> while standing in the midst of this crowd a drop of red liquid lands on heat seeking dennis's hand and i don't know about you guys but Whenever I'm in a strange place, my first instinct is to taste whatever falls on my hand, right? Yeah. Is, is that just me? <laughs> I mean, not if it's falling from the sky. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could be sweat. It could be like, I mean, like blood would be one of my last thoughts. I mean, you, know, you can't tell what color things are with the lighting in that club, but yeah. I don't know that I'd taste it, but I'd probably smell it at least. Yeah. Oh, maybe, yeah. And if it doesn't smell like Hawaiian punch, I just wipe it off. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, of course, what he does just before the sprinklers get turned on and everyone on the dance floor gets showered in blood. 
and this awakes a ravenous urge in the crowd who all love this. But for old Dennis here, this has just gotten weird, so he tries to leave. But his plan to get out of there isn't going as planned because everyone there is now in a frenzy with teeth bared and preventing him leaving. He gets slightly curb stomped and is trying to crawl away when he comes across an impeccably clean pair of boots standing at the edge of the blood-soaked dance floor. Yeah, before we get into this, I, I feel like the blood flowing from the ceiling to me is just, I'm like, the excess of these vampires. <laughs> that you have, you have so much blood that you can just pour it from the sky. You know, I know that later on we find out yeah. that they have access to blood banks and all this stuff, but like, that's your food. That's like, yeah. I don't know, I wouldn't just rain hamburgers from the sky and be like, oh. <laughs> Yeah. Plus, blood blood is gross. Even if yeah. you're not, even if you're not just using it for eating, it's sticky. It is. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be that sticky. It'd be like being covered with maple syrup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is a perfect opportunity to interject a little like public service announcement. One eight hundred to donate. Make a <laughs> an appointment with Canadian Blood Services and donate blood because obviously vampires are out there just <laughs> wasting it to excess. Mm-hmm. And if you live in the States, do it there too. There you go. (laughs) So the camera pans up and we get our super dramatic as it should be with any superhero movie. We get our hero reveal of trench-coated Blade, who is played by Wesley Snipes, who reprises the role in all three Blade movies. He was in Wildcats, Major League, The Fan, Jungle Fever, Art of War, Undisputed, The Expendables 3, Two Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar... And, of course, as we talked about in Episode 8, Demolition Man. I I did read that he was working on getting a Black Panther movie to the screen when this project came along. Really? Yeah, there could have been a Black Panther movie 20 years ago. I'm glad they waited for Chadwick Boseman. I'm so worried about what's going to come out of Black Panther 2 because he was amazing. People often forget, too, though, just how great he is in things like 42 and get on up i mean you know he's got he's got some great credits but the blood stops pouring the mood in the room quickly changes when everyone realizes the daywalker is there and i mean all that's missing is a record scratch (laughs) this scene is so is so perfect like i i started watching it and i just as i was watching because i haven't seen the movie in a while i was just remembering i was like oh yeah this is gonna happen and it was so, it's just so good, the way the blood stops. Blade is there completely clean. Uh-huh. And then, yeah, the mayhem, so good. I love well, it. And the one thing I really don't understand is, right, like, now he sets to work kicking all types of ass with his shotgun, Uzi's sword, and the coolest of all, the double-bladed boomerang. And all <laughs> yes. the people he kills disintegrates into flaming ash. But he gets through all this without any blood on him. Like, I understand yeah, right. that the, the vampires vaporize, mm-hmm. but he's fighting in the bloody room. Like, there's no splash up. Like, he walks away perfectly clean from all of this. And they're all running past him on their way out, covered yeah. in blood. Yeah. So there should be some sort of splashback or something. <laughs> maybe maybe as part of his, like, preparation, he has some sort of spray yeah. that he puts on it to prevent any <laughs> blood sticking on him. <laughs> uh, I, I, I did read that the total body count in this movie is 88. So <laughs> really? Yeah. Especially in that first scene. I, <laughs> yeah. I forgot. I had kind of forgotten how violent this movie is and also how R-rated it is. Yeah. I think just because I'm used to I'm used to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and that kind of stuff and 
but I, yeah, I was surprised by just a how many heads get blown up, how many f bombs are thrown around. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we're desensitized now that Deadpool has been added to the MCU officially. Yeah. <laughs> so pandemonium in the club as people flee and some try to stand their ground against Blade. Ultimately, everyone who is stuck around is now dead, except for one, Quinn. And these guys obviously have a history. He shoots stakes at him, pinning him to the wall before setting him on fire. And at this moment, the cops and fire department burst into the club, and Blade has vanished. There there was supposed to be a Stan Lee cameo right here, playing one of the cops, I read, and it was cut. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? No way. Yeah. Oh, that would have been awesome. So we cut to a hospital where we meet Dr. Curtis Webb performing an autopsy on the charred body of Quinn. He needs to get some advice from hematologist Karen Jensen, who is currently perplexed by the irregularities she sees in a blood sample from this supposedly dead body. And this is played by N. Boucher Wright. I actually went to Wikipedia to get the pronunciation of her name because it's it's spelled like N apostrophe B-U-S-H-E. So yeah, it's N. Boucher. I wanted to make sure that I got that one correct. And Boucher Wright has appeared in Dead Presidents, Fresh, Squeeze, Three Strikes, but she wasn't really in anything between 2006 and 2018. Uh, I guess they really wanted a white actress, but it was Wesley Mm. Snipes that pushed for a black actress for this part. Mm. Good for him. Good for him, absolutely, yeah. Especially when you look at, like, the fact that, except for Blade, were any of the other vampires black at all? Vanessa. Oh, yeah, the... the, the, Oh, well... (laughs) And there's that little girl, too. And, there, and there's the one pureblood vampire. Was there? Okay. The old, yeah. That's right. So he convinces her to come down to the morgue to help with the autopsy, but it seems he had a slightly ulterior motive because they used to be romantically involved and he's trying to win her back in this like Melrose Place scene. I've actually read that they referred to it as the Melrose, <laughs> Melrose Place scene. They wanted to get this cut from the movie. This is when the charred body comes to life and straight up slaughters Dr. Webb with bites before turning his attention and feeding on Karen Jensen and her blade to try to save the fucking day and finish the job he started at the rave club. But before he can do any more than chop Quinn's arm off Luke Skywalker style, the police show up to this disturbance and get in Blade's way, giving Quinn a chance to dive out the window to freedom. Did either of you feel like the whole getting shot with stakes or lit on fire or cut by blade sword was wildly inconsistent in how the vampire on the receiving end would respond. Like I was just thinking about the nightclub scene. There's, there's points where he's just shooting people from probably 10 feet away and they're like, they just get hit and they disintegrate. Meanwhile, Quinn, you know, he takes two to the shoulders, cleverly aimed and he's fine. He gets lit on fire. You know, he's on fire for a fair amount of time and he's fine. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It just seemed it seemed at some points like certain vampires were more resilient than others. Yeah. Yeah, like those stakes that he shot him with, you'd think they were silver, and it seems like anyone as long as they're touched with silver seems to uh, disintegrate. Yeah, like what's Raquel is that the she, yeah. like, she gets the she gets the silver mace and her head explodes. Yeah. She doesn't even get the weird like coagulant shot. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So I, I did read though that Donald Logue in this scene, he actually he ended up falling he had had like a jaw problem a few years earlier and so when he did this scene he hit his jaw and he ended up like wedging it open and having to go to the hospital Ooh. oh yeah. no oh, i thought you were gonna say he ended up fixing it yeah by getting hit. <laughs> i 
That's where I thought it was going to. Yeah. So Blade needs to escape now, too, and he makes a quick decision with Karen bleeding from her neck and decides to take her with him, mostly because of flashbacks of his own mother dying. <laughs> like, is this a vampire thing? Now that you mentioned that David Goyer wrote this film, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. So this is very reminiscent of Batman vs. Superman with the Martha thing. Like, <laughs> David Goyer David Goyer has something, he has mommy issues, because it's like... <laughs> He uses he uses this whole mother this mother pin yeah. as as like the crux of people's people's uh, monumental decisions in movies so yeah, often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This time it works. Batman vs Superman. I'd argue it just it kills the entire movie. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so with this incredible mem- memory of being one minute old and remembering his mom dying. He has his own daring escape involving throwing Karen onto a nearby rooftop and then jumping after her with bullets ricocheting around him. And as he collects Karen, he pops her dislocated shoulder back in in place and flees with her. I remember seeing that. I was just like, ah, <laughs> I just imagine like, like right there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've seen it happen before, but still, I didn't expect it to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Blade takes Karen to a safe house in a rundown factory where she is treated by his old friend and CCR listener, Abraham Whistler, who says, bringing home strays now? And he injects her with essence of garlic, but saying she's likely to not live through the night. Whistler is played by Chris Christopherson, who reprises the role in all the Blade movies, like Frank mentioned up at the top. Uh, So, (laughs) spoiler alert, Planet of the Apes, the shitty 2001 Tim Burton version, Payback, Big Top Pee Wee, and of course, he's a singer-songwriter and former army captain. I didn't know that about Chris Christopherson, is that he was a captain in the army. Hmm. Wow, I didn't know that either. So we get to see the creepy headquarters of the vampires, I guess a a boardroom of some sort? That's what I thought. I I thought it was interesting that they had their own boardroom. Yeah. And it had all that stuff. Like I, 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 at first I was like, so they're are they into politics or is it like just? <laughs> I liked it though. I thought it was a good kick. <laughs> yeah. This is the Council of Elders, and at the head of the table sits Dragonetti, who is played by Udo Kier, who has a ton of credits, but I, I know him best from Ace Ventura: Pet Detective. This is his third vampire that he's played, though. He was in Blood for Dracula in 1974, and this one's German, so I'm going to butcher it. Die and Steiger in 1985. Dragonetti is busy flipping through photos of the Daywalker blade, presumably photos from the club the night before, I guess, maybe? Yeah, Yeah. that's what I thought. I think so. When the owner of the club is let into the room, and as mentioned before, this is Deacon Frost, who is played by Stephen Dorff, who was in Judgment Night, Felon, Public Enemies, Bucky Larson, Immortals, True Detective, and music videos for Aerosmith's Cryin', Limp Bizkit's Rollin', and Britney Spears' Every Time. He was in the Roland video. Yep. Yeah, he's at he's at the beginning with Ben Stiller. Oh, that was him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's cool. That I, I gotta rewatch that now. No, it's funny for me because this was the first time I saw Stephen Dorff in anything except a blue e-cigarette commercial. Okay. <laughs> and he did those like ten years ago. Stephen Dorff vaped before it was cool. Wow. Just saying. There you go. Like that was back when vaping was an alternative. <laughs> yeah. Now it's a way of life, yeah. and he did it way back then. I read that Jet Li and Mark Wahlberg were also considered for the role of Frost, which that's an interesting mix. Yeah. 
Jet Jet Li doesn't really fit in. Yeah, I could I could have saw I could have saw Mark Wahlberg. I, Jet Li seems like a completely different. You're going a completely different way. Well, there there does seem to be a lot of Asian influence in this movie. So I mean, maybe Jet Li would have fit in. Well, I think that Jet Li would have fit in with the martial arts stuff and like yeah. there's yeah Definitely. there's some Asian influence. <laughs> I don't know. Well, Deacon Frost saunters into the room and takes his seat halfway down the table. Serious question though, like who is this guy? Like why is he allowed to get away with being an insolent little shit like is there just something about honor among vampires or something like you think that these other 20 stoic traditional vampires would just have this guy killed why do they put up with him what's so special about deacon frost that's what i was trying to figure out too because he was acting like just so juvenile yeah and they couldn't do anything about it and his his seat is halfway down the table so he doesn't have a place of honor Right. Yeah, they they don't explain. They make a lot of references to him not being a pure blood and not being, you know, one of them. Yeah. But they do, they don't really explain how he even got a seat at the table, which would be beneficial, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it that we had to read the comics first, or or we just go right in? <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder whether that's the case. Yeah, you'd at least understand more, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you said, they even come out and say he's not even a purebred, but. To keep the Harry Potter parallel going, <laughs> Frost has a very Voldemort-esque plan to dominate the world by wiping out all the muggles, I mean humans. The The world belongs to us, <laughs> not the humans. We get a brief scene of Blade visiting a strange apothecary shop to re-up on his supply of the mysterious serum that we will soon have an explanation of, which he's building up a tolerance to, so it's not working as long, and he pays the guy in watches. I, I really like that their currency is whatever they can steal off the dead bodies. That's that's a great yeah. touch. <laughs> yeah. So back at the warehouse hideout, Karen wakes up and snoops around her new environment, including the wall of firearms and blade sword, where we get to see the booby trap on the handle for the first time. (laughs) And I guess that's kind of an example of what you were talking about with it's selective how these things affect them, because obviously the blades on this are silver, which is why it why it vaporizes the one guy's hand later on. But it stops at the elbow like. (laughs) Yeah. Does tolerance only go that far in the arm for the vampire? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I, d- I did like them showing how the sword works so early. Yeah. Because I did notice as I watched the movie, every time somebody who wasn't played picked up the sword, I was like, oh. Like, I was just like, oh, is it going to... Here gonna it comes, and then here it comes, yeah. And then even at the end when Frost has it, like, it shows that he actually knows the trick yeah. and stuff. So it was just a cool touch that kind of kept it kept me into the movie a little bit more. But in mm-hmm. the subway scene, a few different people touch that sword and the booby trap does not go off for a second yeah. time. So she manages to sneak a peek of Blade getting injected by Whistler and by, with his recently acquired serum as they discuss how a hematologist and their crew could be useful. Man, Wesley Snipes makes that serum look painful though when he gets injected (laughs) that looks like it hurts yeah he was shaking in the chair and everything he was like i i I even had to think like like i was just sitting there just like looking at it's like god what's in there (laughs) so after the pain subsides they spot karen snooping she tries to run but even though whistler has a bulky knee brace on does the reason for his knee brace ever get explained uh not in this movie. Okay. I feel I feel like it gets explained in one of the other ones. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, he knows the layout of the warehouse better, and he manages to cut her off, and now she's cornered, and he introduces himself while Blade drops silently behind her. I love the silent drop. Yeah. If I could say something, I noticed that, and I really love the fact that literally every time he hopped in or came in somewhere, there was no sound whatsoever. Yeah. Every time. It just, and there he was. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was the funniest thing. Yeah. Yeah. Behind like, somebody, like, in front of somebody, just no noise. <laughs> when I saw that, I was just thinking, like, there's no way a man that big has that. Like, he he must have just ultra cushioned shoes. Yeah. <laughs> so we we cut to Whistler filling up Blade's car with gas and slopping gas all over, and then lighting up a smoke, which was a fun <laughs> fun sight gag moment. <laughs> And he explains in the first of several expositiony moments in this film that he and Blade have been waging a secret war against vampires using weapons based on their elemental weaknesses, such as sunlight, silver, and garlic, but crosses don't do shit. No mention of holy water either, I, I noticed. They, they they play down the religious aspect of, of uh. vampire hunting mm-hmm. quite a bit. So as Karen is now marked by the bite of a vampire... Both Whistler and Blade tell her to leave the city. Why is she marked? Like, I don't understand this marked business and why the rest of the vampires would care at all about this woman. Yeah. The weird thing is, is that, to me, was that she was bit by Quinn. And Quinn never comes for her. Yeah. Like, generally... The way vampirism works is like you have a you have a it's like Siths. There's a master and an apprentice. So you like have your sire, and so that's the one who bit you. And it's like they have to come yeah. back and kind of like teach you the way. But he literally never ever comes back, and nobody else knows who she is. Yeah. It doesn't seem like so. It doesn't really make a lot of sense why any of them would really care about her at all. You would think they would just assume she was. Well, I mean, I guess they know that Blade took her. The cop mm-hmm. does anyways, so right. that might explain it. But yeah. So Blade, meanwhile, is gearing up to go a vampire hunting. Blade will be dropping Karen off to pack her stuff to get out of there, but before she leaves, Whistler gives her what he calls vampire mace, which is a spray with essence of garlic and silver nitrate. He also gives her some advice. He doesn't think they were able to stop her infection in time. Buy a gun. If you start feeling sensitive to light... Use it on yourself. So nice bleak goodbye from from, <laughs> from Abraham here. He was so confident when he said it, too. <laughs> <laughs> Just kill yourself. Trust me. Upon returning to her apartment and now hyper aware that she lives in a world inhabited by vampires, Karen sees a couple of questionable people on the elevator uh, with matching hieroglyph tattoos on their necks. She gets to her floor, feels like she's being followed by these two, but then she turns around with her mace. There's no one there. So she goes into her apartment and starts frantically packing because now she's a little freaked out. That's when a police officer by the name of Krieger enters her apartment under the pretense of a wellness check because she's a missing person now. But he ends up pulling a gun, his gun on her, so she uses her mace and sprays him. Turns out he's not a vampire, but rather a familiar, a human slave controlled by a vampire. Blade shows up because he was just using Karen as bait, and beats and subdues Krieger, and uses information from him to locate Frost in an archive that contains pages of the Book of Erebus, the Vampire Bible. So he hauls Krieger down to the street to give us the exposition required to understand a familiar's role in the vampire hierarchy, showing that he has bags of blood in his trunk and that he's kind of a courier for these vampires. But the cop must free of him, and, and because the sidewalk is busy, Blade can't get a clear shot at him as he runs away. I, I love, though, that Blade pulling his gun gets pedestrians to scatter and scream, yet nobody is really giving the sword that he's carrying around on his back a second look at all. 
Like, in fact, when he puts the gun away, people just kind of go on about their business as usual. Like, as if, <laughs> as if nothing just happened. But there's still this, like, scary dude there with his big old sword strapped to his back. I, I think I'd be crossing the street at that point myself. Yeah. I mean, not to mention, like, the fact that he's also just dressed head to toe in black and with body armor and yeah. stakes, silver stakes on his leg. <laughs> I'm sure there's someone like that walking in New York City right now as we speak. And people, are just, <laughs> people, are just, people are just walking past him, you know? It's just <laughs> another day. Uh, yeah. Dressed like Blade and not ironically. <laughs> And I just want to point out the subways in the SF Bay Area are just about the same way. <laughs> yeah? Okay. So Blade and his new unwanted sidekick, Karen, decide to stake out the cop's car. And when he comes back, I love Karen's line of, no one's that stupid. Yeah. <laughs> they, they pursue him in a weird, fast-forwarded directorial choice. I don't understand some of the visual choices in this movie, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. We get some more exposition from Blade, some of it just a repeat from what Whistler told us earlier, in case we missed it the first time, and some of it talking about vampire safe houses and glyph markings as they hide in an alley across from one of the safe houses or weird Japanese panty club, whatever <laughs> it is. Um, he's also busy pointing out all the vampires to her. He can tell by the way they move and the way they smell. They enter this weird Japanese club. Like, I, I don't understand what is going on in this club. We have Japanese schoolgirls on stage singing, but it's got, like, strip club vibes, too. Is this what vampires are into? <laughs> I also, I mean, I do wonder, like, what is Wesley Snipes' obsession with Japanese culture? Like, I don't know the source material well enough to know if this is a Blade thing. But, like, I know that Wesley Snipes has a few movies like Art of War and Rising Sun where he leans heavily into it. Like, is it like Dan Daniel LaRusso and Karate Kid basically adopting another culture as his own? I don't think the cultural stuff plays as much of a role in the comics. Like, from what I know about the comics, he's just a straight-up vampire yeah. hunter. So there would be more of, like, things around vampire lore and that type of stuff. But, like, all the, all the kind of, like, mm -hmm. Asian cultural appropriation isn't is it wouldn't really be there unless they were dealing with some sort of Japanese vampires or something like that, I don't think. Yeah. Right. Anyway, they walk through this weird-ass club and end up finding their famil familiar cop coming out of the freezer. Blade roughs him up some more, looking for Frost, but Frost isn't there. However, he does point out a secret passage behind one of the freezers. Blade lets him go to tell his boss that Blade is looking for him, and he and Karen head down the mysterious passageway. I will also say that they get into this very shiny elevator, which, though, is clearly not a real elevator because there's no gap in the floor. <laughs> it's, just, it's one of those things they obviously built this set and didn't think about including like a little slot in the floor to make it look like a real elevator. It's always the little things. <laughs> <laughs> but they go down in the elevator and they find the high-tech archive. And then we cut to a very swanky penthouse apartment with a party going on. We see Quinn, who is no longer a charred corpse, but still looking rough, like he just went 10 rounds with Tyson, and a gloved hand like Luke Skywalker. We find out that the penthouse is actually home to Deacon Frost, who is currently holed up in his bedroom with his computer trying to continue the translation of the Book of Erebus, which we had seen a bit earlier. And now the computer tells him the translation is complete. How cool is his bed, though? 
Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, what the fuck is up with that bed? <laughs> that's a serial, that's a serial killer's bed. <laughs> but vamp- <laughs> vampires sleep in coffins, so I understand that it must yeah. like, seal him off, right? I guess that's a good point. <laughs> I don't know. It's I just so thought, much I funnier just... now, now that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was so odd that Vanessa. Vanessa seems to just live in the live in the bed. Like yeah. she yeah. just lives in the bed. Yeah. <laughs> so his translation mission is complete. He shows practically no emotion over it and heads out to join everyone else. But Krieger the familiar has crashed the party to pass on the ominous warning from Blade. And as a way to thank him for this information, Frost kills and eats Krieger. And now he's all forget the girl. I want blade and we get a disgusting bloody kiss between frost and mercury licking blood off each other's face and (laughs) i mean but yeah so they're going after blade not the girl and uh, i mean i still don't understand why they were so obsessed with karen anyway it makes no sense to me but back to blade and karen in the secret passage where they come upon pearl a morbidly obese vampire who blade calls the record keeper and they torture him with a UV light into revealing that Deacon wants to command a ritual where he would use 12 pure blood vampires to represent the 12 spirits. With the blood and the strength of all 12 spirits, it will awaken the blood god La Magra. And Blade's blood is the key, the blood of a daywalker. And Karen at this point is kind of all in though, eh? Like, <laughs> she, <laughs> she, is, she is enjoying torture so much like so fucking much (laughs) to the point where even where blade even kind of is like "Mm, i don't know about that yeah he moved (laughs) (laughs) her saying he moved is her dropping the mic (laughs) just fried him (laughs) he pissed me off i'm yeah i'm just gonna go to town (laughs) oh man so blade has found a vault door and he uses some sort of explosive foam around the edge of it to blow the door open. And he has found the vampire Bible. And the Bible room is kind of cool. Like all those long pages yes. suspended in glass panels. Yeah, I thought that was cool too. Yeah. I, I read that every one of those printouts would cost $5 a piece for them to make. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So so add, add them all up. There's uh, at least a hundred. Yeah, just for the papers. And then, and then how many times did they have to reset the glass no. and, and the uh, and the paper? Uh, yeah, they they spent thousands of dollars on these pages. When I was watching that scene, I remembered, I thought that I thought that it was printed on human skin, but that must be from a different movie. Maybe. Well, there is the one point where he says that it's at least written in blood, where Whistler looks at it and yeah. says it smells like a vampire wiped his ass with it, but says that <laughs> it's blood. Well, the bad guys have formulated a plan to ambush Blade because they know where he is, but they're under orders to bring him in alive. And just like Julia Roberts said to the shop clerk that refused to give her service in Pretty Woman, big mistake. Yes. Huge. <laughs> because Blade at this point kicks a whole bunch of glass. Huh? Huh? See what I did there? <laughs> he's throwing them through the pages of the bible knocking them around and although they manage to temporarily capture him by tying him to a pillar with a wire around his neck in what appears to be a well-executed tactical strike and they have karen held hostage he gets out of it after he's been staked a couple times as payback from (laughs) from our friend quinn but he says i'm expecting company and enter Whistler with the line, Did I catch you fuckers at a bad time? 
Oh, before unleashing a barrage of ammunition down upon them, mowing them down. The vault gets blown up in the process, and it turns into a chase now as Quinn goes after Blade, and we get a very exciting battle in a subway tunnel where they are fighting and dodging what have to be the longest subway trains ever. Like, every time one of those trains goes by, it's like 15 cars long. (laughs) Yes. They just Um, kept going and going. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, Quinn escapes after losing another hand, and Blade gets Karen to safety inside a subway car, and now it's Karen's turn to fix Blade's dislocated shoulder, and watch as he injects more serum. And then we go back to the warehouse hideout and listen to more exposition, this time it's Whistler telling Karen Blade's backstory about what makes him different from regular vampires. The fact that he was born from a mother who was bit. So we also finally learn what the serum he keeps injecting is, something to keep his bloodlust under control, and of course the tragic backstory of Whistler's dead family and why he hunts vampires. No mention of his leg injury, though. I still want to know that story. Plus, we ominously find out that Frost is planning something big. So Karen goes to find Blade with this newfound knowledge who is kind of sulking now, and she stops being a hematologist, but instead a psychologist, as she listens to Blade discuss his hunting to avenge his mom and in Wesley Snipes' big drama moment. This is his Oscar speech moment. (laughs) (laughs) You know, had Blade been nominated for... (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We cut to Frost sitting in a car, meticulously putting on sunblock, Turns out he and his inner crew have abducted Dragonetti. So this is what I was saying that the other guys should have done to him in the first place for just being a, a little shit. You know, <laughs> they, they've abducted Dragonetti. They, they've taken him to a beach to watch the sunrise. Obviously, because he's a vampire, this isn't going to go well. But you know, that's kind of the goal because the younger group of non-pureblood vampires is ready to overthrow the purebloods. It's a mutiny, and they defang him, and then Dragonetti explodes in a glorious fireball while the rest of the gang wearing tinted motorcycle helmets watch on. I don't understand this sunblock. Yeah? This is something I have, like, made... Like, it gets even worse, I think, the scene next when they're actually talking to Blade in broad daylight without yeah. motorcycle helmets. Yeah. yeah. But it was like, okay, I could buy the sunblock for like, oh, we just needed to protect ourselves in the early, early light before the full sun is out. And then yeah. we need to put on our helmets, which I mean, they should be like welding helmets, not just motorcycle tinted helmets. Right. <laughs> yeah. But then later on, when they're just like full view covered in sunblock, like, I don't know, it goes against everything I know about vampire lore. The suggestion that any, any, va- and what about his scalp? Like did yeah. he put did he put oh, sunblock yeah. all in his scalp and like yeah you would have to literally dip yourself in sunblock for this well, and, and to don't even your, be feasible. Don't your eyeballs count as skin? Like, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. and at the same time, it's it's about there's like a magical supernatural aspect to it. It's not about the sun like literally just burns like your skin can no longer take the sun and it burns you off. It's about like you're a creature of the night. You're not allowed to be in the day, even if. Yeah. Most vampires, even if you were wearing sunblock, you would still burn. I don't know. It's a real bone of contention for me in this movie. Yeah, him putting on the sunblock reminds me of the first Batman movie when whenever Joker paints his face skin tone. (laughs) Right. 
So back at the warehouse hideout, Karen has basically moved in at this point and stolen a bunch of lab equipment from her hospital. She's experimenting with the anticoagulant EDTA as a possible replacement for the serum, but discovers that it explodes when combined with vampire blood. I did notice here that she takes some of Blade's blood without tying him off first. Another one of those details that's a little annoying to me. Looks like the good guys have just found a new weapon to use, though. Karen is confident that she can cure Blade's bloodthirst, but it would take her years of treating it. We also get yet more exposition about Whistler and the fact that he's dying from cancer, and the dreary realization that Karen probably only has a couple days left before she turns too. So, she sets to work trying to synthesize a vaccine. What a bunch of downers. Yeah. That's not a good thing at that part. <laughs> I, I heard that the ending was that the blood god was going to win. And, like, a wave was going to go over the entire city and everyone was going to turn to vampires. Like, it was supposed to end on an apocalyptic ending. And really? It, yeah, they weren't sure whether there would actually be a sequel. So, mm-hmm. that was scrapped, but... I honestly feel like that would have that would have set up even better sequels. Yeah. Like, Blade, Blade is the perfect character to be kind of, like, I am legend. Like, just the last man mm, yeah. In, yeah. In, in, a, in, a, in a fallen world. Yeah. yeah. No, I heard that's kind of similar to how they were going to end a little shop of horrors. Yeah. Because the Broadway musical ends with the with the plant eating everybody. Yep. But then in the movie, Frank Oz, well, actually, they, they filmed the whole ending with that. And Frank Oz, who directed it, went through preview audiences and they said how much they hated that ending because they all died. So yeah. he, had to, he had to reshoot it and, re- and rewrite it and all that stuff. But but you're right, Colin, about that. Him being the only daywalker left in a world yeah. of in a world of vampires. That, that would be good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of funny. There, there's a few movies that I think would have. It's like the happy ending almost kind of ruined the movie. Mm hmm. That's interesting that you say that, too, about the movie, because I never thought of that, and I know the musical Little Shop of Horrors fairly well, and, like, the closing song of the musical is something where it, like, narrates the bleak future that's about to come of the plants taking over, so there is actually a song in the original Broadway version, so I've just never really noticed that with the movie, but I love Rick Moranis, and I'm glad they caught that guy. No one punches Rick Moranis. Yes. Blade, now on one of his patrols of the city, ends up finding Frost, or or maybe Frost found him might be the better way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> with his weird little mind whisper to Blade. <laughs> <laughs> so he holds a young Asian schoolgirl hostage so that Blade won't attack him. Frost is a little jealous of Blade being a daywalker because he has all the same strengths, but none of the weaknesses. Because obviously Deacon Frost doesn't see bloodthirst as a weakness, I guess. But I'd say that's the same weakness as an actual vampire, though. Mm -hmm. Frost is offering a truce between them. Blade, of course, is not having any of that shit. Blade can see that Frost's sunscreen is starting to run, and Blade attempts to shoot Frost, but he dodges very Matrix-style, and... Frost has to get out of there, so he throws his hostage across the fucking park and into the street where she is in danger of being run over by a bus. Quick decision time. Go after Frost or save the girl. Well, Blade is a true hero and chooses the latter, saving the little girl just in time and telling her to go home. When I was watching this scene, at the point where uh, Blade tells Frost that his makeup's starting to run or whatever, 
I just thought to myself, somebody missed out on an opportunity to make an epic Rudy Giuliani meme. Like I was just like, if you took, if you took, if you took that picture of his 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 hair dye running down his yes. face and just put blade on the bottom. <laughs> it was. I mean, the guy the guy basically looks like a vampire. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, but you know what, Colin? There was one other thing I saw in that park before Frost threw the girl. I saw a student walk by wearing a Jansport backpack, so I think it's time to slip in Sponsorship Corner! Wow, I actually, it's been so long that I thought maybe you just forgot. Nope. But here we go. (laughs) Here we go, always on the lookout for product placements. Blade has very few, but I found a handful. Blade is brought to you by Jansport, Blackfly Sunglasses, Miller Lite, KP Steel, Atlas Auto and Exhaust, the movie Mortal Kombat, because when Krieger dies, that's playing on the TV in the penthouse, and Blade's very sexy black 1968 Dodge Charger, it's a couple years earlier than Dom's and Fast and the Furious, but I'm pretty sure Blade also lives life a quarter mile at a time. And this has been Sponsorship Corner. I love that. That was good. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to Fast 9 in space. <laughs> <laughs> So Frost, after running away, has managed to infiltrate Blade's hideout before he gets back. He and his goons ambush Whistler and kick his ass, spit on him, which, oh, that's just disturbing when he just spits on Whistler, and leave him for dead as a message to Blade. Blade returns to the hideout to find Whistler in a chair covered in a bloody sheet with a videotape nearby. Whistler, it turns out, is still barely alive enough to warn Blade that going after him is dangerous. And I love that Blade here, he pulls out, like, the tiniest piece of gauze and like starts dabbing at Whistler's wounds with it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, what are you doing? He's dying. Why are you even bothering? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's just a little square of gauze. It's like, well, yeah, sure, that'll help. <laughs> so every little bit. Maybe just a little here, a little there, maybe. It's just a uh, flesh wound. It's it's like the Simpsons where uh, Homer thinks he's dying, and uh, he teaches Bart to shave, and then he's like, "You shave here, 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 and then you grab a little piece of toilet paper and put it here and here and anywhere else you're bleeding." <laughs> <laughs> we got the same thing happening here. The exposition, though, that we get from Whistler as he's dying, they need his Daywalker blood to carry out their vampire apocalypse plan of resurrecting the Blood God. You're the Keyblade. You're blood you're the chosen one if frost gets his hands on you it's over there's only one thing to do all that said run to frost (laughs) run right into his hands exactly but not before whistler begs blade to kill him because he's been beaten uh, bitten and he doesn't want to become a vampire but blade can't do it so whistler demands that blade leave his gun so he can do it himself and blade does and walks away we hear a bang get a close-up of whistler's hand dropping the gun the end of whistler unless you've seen the sequels blade watches the videotape (laughs) which is calling blade out and of course to sweeten the threat they have karen as well we need a damsel in distress Now it's mini-montage time of Blade gearing up for his hunt by smelting bullets and filling vials of EDTA and pulling the cloth off his motorcycle 
and meditating, you know, stuff like that. And it all ends with him pulling a plant out of a pot and very dramatically slicing the roots of it off with his sword. What? I did not understand what was happening. I didn't either. I was like, yeah. It's like, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. I'm at a loss. I was just like, oh, Blade, Blade is all, he's just taking a break to for a herbology lesson or something like that. I don't know. Like yeah. he's just it's, it's supposed to symbolize the fact that Whistler just died and he's cutting his roots to like yeah, I I don't know. Well, just, I thought maybe he was making some <laughs> some serum or something, but I don't know. It's yeah. it's just a weird it's a weird aside as yeah. far as I could tell. So we cut back to Frost's penthouse where Karen is kind of egging on Frost to get under his skin, bragging about her cure and attacking his Achilles heel, his pure blood status. And she's calling vampires a virus. And then he responds with a pretty melodramatic speech uh, <laughs> about his plan to take over the world with a with dramatic music scoring this moment. Mm-hmm. It's a little cheesy compared to everything we've just seen. But when his plan plays out, it won't matter who's pure blood and who's not. But oh shit, they have an intruder downstairs. All of Frost's henchmen line up to deal with it, and we hear a motorcycle revving. Uh, <laughs> I like he has the line of something like, you know, it's just one man by himself. It's just one man on foot. <laughs> yeah, one man on foot. That's what the line is. Yes, that's why the yeah. fact that he's on a motorcycle is hilarious. Blade cuts through all these guards easily in some pretty awesome fight choreography and also using his new anticoagulant as a weapon too. Uh, I'd say the vampire effects of them exploding are a little on the weak side though. They were running out of out of CGI money at this point. Yeah. Yeah, cuz the <laughs> the fight with Frost coming up is also one that's a little uh hard to watch. Yes. <laughs> But I will say, you know, I did love, well, I'm not sure if it's too late to say this, but I did love every aspect of CGI in this movie. Yeah. Especially for coming from 1998. Yeah. Because here it is. I I was thinking, because this was three years after Toy Story, which is like the first full-length computer film. And this movie, 20 years ago, had better CGI than Cats. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) I lost all hope in CGI when I saw that trailer. (laughs) My wife pointed out a lot of, uh, there's a lot of influence, I think, of Blade in the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a, they're very, they look very similar, and even some of the CGI, there's the whole bullet thing with Frost that's very reminiscent of of the Matrix. So, it definitely, I mean, you always forget there was a time before CGI, and so it's interesting sometimes watching movies like this where you can see it's it's still in its infancy, but it's not as bad as you'd think. Mortal Kombat was rougher in a lot of the places, that's for sure. Yeah. So Frost throws the building into lockdown. Blade makes his way into the boardroom and finds that super cool bed, which opens up and reveals Blade's mother, Twist. I like that we find out that Blade's real name is Eric. Yeah. So (laughs) soft. (laughs) Who the fuck? Yeah, he looks more like a he looks more like a T bone or a <laughs> or, or a blade. I, I think yeah. <laughs> I think that one kind of nailed it right on the head there. Uh, not Eric. Well, <laughs> like she could have found out that we could have found out his name was like Gavin or or like Connor or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there's kind of yeah, Charlie. I don't know. <laughs> 
Well, she reveals that she came back to life the night that she was attacked and was brought in by Frost, who appears and reveals himself as the vampire who bit her. Well, his mother being alive is enough of a distraction that they're able to start tasing Blade and subduing him. Blade, in desperate need of serum, is then taken with Karen in the back of a truck to the Temple of Eternal Night, where Frost plans to perform the summoning ritual for La Megra. Frost takes a moment to throw what he thinks is Blade's serum away. That'll come back. Quinn steals Blade's sunglasses. Frost teases that he's going to cut off Quinn's arm with Blade's sword. <laughs> and this is the moment you were talking about where he knows the, how to turn off the booby trap. That, but that was a very funny moment where he's yeah. like, come on, man, I just grew up back. <laughs> <laughs> and Karen is thrown into a pit to be devoured by her ex-boyfriend slash colleague Webb, who has transformed into a decomposing zombie-like creature. Did I miss why? <laughs> they brief, they briefly talk about it as they're bringing her to the pit, but it's not really explained why some, like, what, what, it's not explained what caused that to happen to him. Yeah. yeah well, I felt the same way. Yeah. Just, you, you expect him to be a vampire, but right. it's like being thrown into the Rancor pit in Return of the Jedi. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's this creature down there, not, not a vampire. But Karen injures Webb with a sharp bone and escapes. She's such a badass. Like, to go from being a doctor a night ago <laughs> to now she's torturing <laughs> Pearl and, <laughs> and stabbing her ex-boyfriend with a bone. Like, yes. Meanwhile, Blade is put into this weird Han Solo-esque carbonite-looking contraption. All I know is that looking at this, if Blade figurines didn't come in packaging that looks like this thing, that was a huge missed opportunity. Like, it's yeah. like, to, to bring Toy Story back into it, it's like the packing foam in Toy Story 2, when the, the toy guy, Al, he's packing up the toys and he's got the foam cases, right. yeah. But, you know, it, it would have also been great if there were, like, giant twist ties, not belts, holding Blade in place here. <laughs> but that's all I could see was an action figure. Right. But he, he is weak because he's busy trying to fight his bloodlust. It's been too long since his last dose of serum. His mother comes in completely on Frost's side, and we get this weird moment of like sexual tension between mother and son. Was I the only one that got that vibe from that scene? I got it too. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange. Yeah, I was just sitting there like, uh... <laughs> It's a very Oedipal moment. Gave me sure. Manchurian candidate vibes. <laughs> <laughs> You ever read that book? <laughs> no. Something similar like that happens. Moving on. Okay. All right. I'll watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which version? Because there's the Denzel remake. Well, definitely the Denzel one. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Blade isn't willing to join them, so they need to take his blood by force, with knives digging into his wrists as the other side of this action figure packaging closes in on him. And then... <laughs> Below, in the main chamber, the Vampire Council has been meticulously placed around the outside of the big circle with, with Frost on a plinth in the center. I don't understand, though. Like, uh, one of these council elders gets slaughtered by Mercury for being sassy. Uh, yes. So, like, with one less body for this ritual, is it still going to work properly? It seemed like it was very necessary to have 12. Did it still come out of the dead guy? I'm trying to remember. Because oh yeah, the skeleton at the end what was it like I a like a Notre Dame gargoyle or something like yeah. that coming <laughs> out of their mouth yeah I'm trying to think if was it the, the, the dead guy part of it because yeah that's only eleven now yeah so like, unless somebody took one for the team and went went for it. that that's some sloppy 
ritual work that Frost has going on, letting his letting his henchmen <laughs> slaughter people. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the blood from Blade starts going through special channels and decorative symbols on the ceiling and walls, where it ends up distributed over the heads of each of the council members and dripping on them. Meanwhile, Karen has found Blade and somehow easily figures out how to open this carbonite <laughs> box and, and releasing him. He is drained of his blood, but Karen allows him to drink from her, enabling him to recover. And so, I mean, there's no actual sex scene in this movie, but him drinking from her is pretty close. That's the closest <laughs> we're going to get. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the raunchiest, I don't know, drinking I've ever seen. It's, I don't yeah, know. The, there's, so much, there's so much thrusting. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what's, right. I don't know what's happening here. So back in the main chamber, the final stage of the ritual takes place with blood pooling in the center of the ceiling symbol thingy with some more pretty rough CGI. And lightning strikes uh, with the skeletons of the pure bloods climbing out through their mouths, which is also some rough CGI. But they tried really hard. <laughs> and Frost completes the ritual and obtains the powers of Lamegra. But Blade confronts Frost after killing all of his minions, including Blade's mother, and finally Quinn, so he gets his sunglasses back, but he's pissed. Blade and Frost get their fight on. Why are there sparks coming off their swords? I don't know, because it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the, how he like just kills Quinn with that zip wire. Yeah. Like that, that scene where he kills him and then catches the glasses is so yes. iconic. In my, I, in my I love that too. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and I mean, I don't know. This movie, this movie to me reminded me that all I really need in a movie to make it worthwhile is a good sword fight, even if it's just like two <laughs> two minutes. That's all I need. <laughs> so we see that Frost can instantly heal now that he is one with the Blood God, and in some more rough CGI. Karen is also fighting Mercury and finishes her off with the vampire Mace to the grill, making her head explode. And the syringes of blood serum that were thrown away by Frost, that are actually anticoagulant, come back into play. I love, though, how he throws his sword, and Frost says, like, nice shot, or you missed, or whatever it was. But it's it's the blade booby trap on the handle that makes the rocks break open and get him his anticoagulant. And then he does that cool catch behind his back. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you did you skip over the sweet scene where he like cuts Frost in half, and then you have the like silent close up on Blade's face where he's like, "What the fuck?" And he's yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. right. I, I kind of skipped past it, but I, I I mentioned it, but just as the rough CGI of him automatically uh, yeah. healing, yeah. But Blade injects Frost with all of the syringes, causing his body to inflate and explode, killing him. And Blade has his line, a really iconic line, which I honestly don't understand in this context, but where he says some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. Like, it's fun, but I don't get it. Like, I, I really don't get it. Am I just, you know, an idiot? Let's think, yeah. let's think I also sat it. there like, oh, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, it was cool in the moment. Yeah. But then I yeah. think about it, like, ice skate. I mean, the moral of it, I guess, is like, people always want to do things the hard way. Yeah. But I don't know how fraught, like... Yeah. I, it's, like, it's like saying, you could have just been cut in half, but instead I had to explode you. Yeah. I don't know. I did want to point out, I was just thinking about this this morning after watching the movie last night, but it's weird to me, like, Lamagra is a blood god. Mm. Like, an all-powerful blood god. What is it about the this coagulant serum? That, like, yeah, it works on all these normal vampires, 
But why couldn't he just reconstitute himself again? It's not really explained in any way why why exploding him was the magic was the magic button that yeah. did it. Yeah, because because he can, again, he's a god. <laughs> yeah, and he can instantly heal when he's cut in half. I mean, exploding—that's yeah. just a whole bunch more pieces, but it's still just pieces. You're right. Yeah, it would take a little it, while longer, but it would still come together. <laughs> yeah, it kind—it kind of now that you said before about how the the original ending was Lamagra was gonna win. And this this scene kind of made a little bit more like it seems more like it was just thrown together last minute. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I mean, if Lamagra does win, then it, then in the sequels, Blade has the opportunity to figure out what do I actually need to do to to beat him. Yeah. You know? But what, another thing I read about the ending originally is that he was supposed to just turn into like this gelatinous blob of blood. Like, okay, yeah. So the fact that they added it in as a sword fight between him and like a physical frost that was something that was a late addition to this movie. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So we get denouement time in this movie, and there's still a war going on. If you want to help, make me a better serum. And then we get a brief epilogue where Blade confronts the vampire in Moscow, making this movie a little cliffhangery, and the end. Yes. And that is Blade. Now, Colin Frank on IMDb, it scored a 7.1 out of 10, has a meta score of 45. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has 56 on the tomato meter and an audience rating of 78%. But, Colin, those are just numbers. Give me some reviews. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, the critics hated this movie, unfortunately, but I love it. So I, I definitely leaned more on the positive reviews. Yeah. So the first one we have is from Google Play. It's J.L. Jones. This was written in 2015. That's important. Okay. And I'll get to it after. So he says, <laughs> Great action. Snipes puts in a great performance as the Marvel Daywalker half-human, half-vampire. I personally look to Blade as the movie that kicked the adaptation of comic book characters being feature-length movies into high gear, not to diminish Todd McFarlane's spawn in any way. As I'm writing this review in 2015, Snipes and Marvel have been having dialogue about there being a new Blade movie, or Marvel finding some way to bring Blade back into the MCU, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., perhaps. Hmm. I thought that was just interesting (laughs) just because it's like... (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) Yeah, it's just just crazy how, how, how far we've even come from 2015 with like... The net. I could have. I would have expected Blade to be a part of the Netflix Marvel shows eventually if they had kept on going. But yeah, I mean the pun. Like all those sh- all those shows are more compared to the movies. They're more in line with, I guess, the tone that I think Blade could have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I I find it funny though, or interesting that and a review written in 2015 references only Spawn in that yeah. as you know. Uh, for what was it for dark dark heroes it said or whatever yeah well i think he was talking just talking about hero movies before which is another interesting thing because i have another review that i'm going to talk about later but in my mind blade is kind of the beginning of the superhero genre Mm -hmm. like even i watched spawn and i enjoyed spawn but i i felt that movie was always kind of campy like blade to me was the first superhero movie that was like kind of serious because after blade then comes x-men and then after x-men comes spider-man and daredevil fantastic four and all those ones that are kind of truer to the comic book source that people would know but i'll talk about that after the next one i have is from douglas Payne. he says this is the movie that made marvel what it is today an r-rated gory filled often dark movie that was a winning combo 
along with the perfect actor for the role and a non-origin story has me watching this over and over again. They didn't recreate that until Deadpool and see how much of a success it was, Marvel. Take notes. My only gripes with this movie is the dated special effects, sometimes poor acting and cheesy dialogue, but it's still better than most of the Marvel movies out there. Okay. Uh, when was that one written? This was from 2019. Okay. Oh, okay. shoot. <laughs> it, 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 it brings up a good point that that I often say now is I feel like I feel like the superhero movies need to do away with the origin story movie. Like yeah. you can always just throw it in in like flashbacks, but I don't need the I don't need the origin story to be the entire movie. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, and now we'll go to the actual critics' reviews. So David Kerr with the New York Daily News says, "Has the comic book movie reached the end of the line?" Again, this was written in 1998. The glumly familiar been there done that aspect of Blade certainly suggests so. And so what what superhero movies I don't remember there being that many superhero movies other than Batman, I guess, before nineteen ninety eight. Yeah. Yeah, Bat Batman and Yeah. Well, I mean there there was the, the Supermans. The, yeah, the Dolph Lundgren Punisher. Yeah. I mean Yeah, not not very oh, good yeah. ones. Yeah. And and I mean that I wonder what that person thinks now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and the last one i have is from michael wilmington with the chicago tribune he said blade is often ridiculous mostly poorly written poor david goyer and surprisingly poorly acted too hmm. let's see and I, I i did point out the one moment where Stephen dorf was a little over the top but i don't think anyone else gave a really bad performance at all no yeah i thought i thought blade was weirdly inconsistent at times like anytime he did like for example, when he when he spikes Quinn to the wall and then he does the like the like arm pump. Yeah, I thought that was a bit weird, but <laughs> but overall, I think like Wesley Snipes was perfectly cast. I can't imagine another person being Blade. Yeah, especially on the cool day. Yeah. Right on. So there we go. We've got, like I said, 45 and 56 from critics, 7.1 and 78 percent from audiences. Frank, it's your first watching of this movie. What did you think of your first experience with Blade? Honestly, I did enjoy it. You yeah. know, like, of course, you know, there's, you noticed that the CGI was very, I, I didn't notice until we were talking about it, it was very good at the beginning of the movie, then it started to kind of dwindle a bit. But still, I was very impressed by that aspect, especially mm-hmm. with the budget they had and, and the technology they had back then. I do think everybody put a really good performance. Like, I loved um, Chris Christopherson. He did, I, I loved his character, his portrayal of Whistler. Mm-hmm. Steven Dorf could have been, like you said, over the top sometimes. He, and he, he was just a, a, a dick in general. But, but, but he played it to a T because, you know, when you really hate the guy and you want to go into the movie and punch him, like, yeah. that's how you know they're playing a good character. And, and I just love Wesley in it. But per, I, I enjoyed it. Like, honestly, like, I, I don't think I'm going to be, like, obsessed with the movie forever and ever. But, I mean, for my first time watching it, because for me, I, I don't watch a lot of superhero films. Like, I, I'm, like, into really old movies. Like from way back, like like forties and fifties, film noir and things okay, like that. Okay. But like, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, nice. yeah. I, I know your theme song is for for your podcast. It definitely shows what kind of era you belonged in. You know, you're you're an old soul, aren't you? Uh, you could say. <laughs> uh, Colin Blade, you still love it? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Just from. This movie was like comfort viewing to me. I like I said, I haven't watched it in a long time. Mm-hmm. But as soon as it started, as soon as that club music hit, and I was like, "Oh, I know it's about to go down." And then you see Blade show up, and then it's just like the thing. I, they don't make a lot of movies like this that are just nonstop the whole way through. Like that's what I appreciate. 
I don't know. I don't know what it says about me, but I love I love violence. I love violent movies. I love the martial arts, the sword fighting, the people getting blown up and sliced up. Like it's just and it just from from the time you see those boots and the pool of blood to the very last, you know, sword fight and the kicking the needles in Deacon Frost's head. Yeah. Like the movie just never really lets up at all. And yeah. I I I liked it. I still yeah. still like it a lot. It's still one of my favorite movies like i said i think i i think this this even the current marvel like movies now like owe a lot like i think the whole superhero movie genre owes a lot to blade because it was the first it was one of the first one that was taken really seriously because you had you had the tim burton batman movies and they were dark and serious but 95 97 you had the schumacher batman movies and i think that took us like 50 steps back yeah so then we had blade blade right at the course yeah. And took us to where we are now. <laughs> yeah, did. yeah, I mean, I, I noticed on this watch, I, I I obviously mentioned it a few times. I found it much more exposition heavy than I remember. And with your comment earlier about they should do away with the origin story. I mean, there was definitely some moments in this for me that dragged a bit. But yeah, the, the action was still... It was high octane. It was It was fun. It was exciting. And yeah, I mean, this is still... This is still probably like an eighty percent movie for me, you know. Even after yeah. even after twenty years, Re- really, the only critique I would have of the movie now is like, and this is just being older, I think, and expecting more from movies. Is even though Deacon Frost is kind of a uh, what's the word you keep using? He's kind of a brat. Yeah, I think that this movie could have benefited a lot if they would have explained him a little bit more. Yeah. Like yes. where he comes from and what his backstory is and how he got to where he is and that would have ex- that would have done a lot to help explain why he wanted to do all the things he does. Like his his whole his whole purpose in the movie is kind of lost, yeah, because it's not really ever ever explained. So I think mm-hmm. I would I would have I love to see a version of this movie that kind of maybe goes back and explains him a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, because they just jump right in and assume he's he's the bad guy. Maybe he's the good guy. We don't know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there we go. That is Blade, and that is our show for this week. Now, a big thank you to our special guest, Frank Driscoll. It's been a blast having you on our show today, Frank. Yeah, man, you're awesome. I had a blast. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. If if people want to find you out there on the old interwebs, uh, where can they find you? Uh, well, the podcast is called Frankfully Honest. There are new episodes every Thursday at 8 a.m. Eastern, 5 a.m. Pacific time. So depending on where you are in this zany world of ours, I'm sure you'll be able to find a time where you can listen. And it's a very short program, so if you don't like it, it'll be over before you know it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, you can follow our program both on Instagram and Twitter at FranklyCast. That was the shortest handle I could get without all the other good ones being taken. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Yes, uh, like you said, it is a very short format uh, podcast. I enjoyed binge listening to his entire catalog, and it took me an hour to get through it. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, if you've got 90 minutes to kill, you can listen to our show and Frank's at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's a really fun concept. Why did you choose to do the uh, such a short format? Well, you know, I... Uh... I took a class in college, right? I I just graduated from San Francisco State University, and I took a class last fall, and it was about short-form media. I majored in uh, broadcasting uh, communication arts, and um, this class was mostly about uh, scripted web series, and like 
you know, like 10 minute episodes and things like that. And as I was researching through items to write about things like that, I, I kind of realized how influential short format is getting because also at this at this time they were they announced a, that platform uh, quibi which sadly is not around anymore <laughs> uh they announced that at the time and then I, I had a feeling for a second that this is starting to kind of grow and plus I, I i was always a big fan of andy rooney on 60 minutes okay, yeah. here in the united states yeah. he, he'd spend his last three minutes of the program just talking about whatever the hell he wanted yeah. and also I, I listen to a lot of you know short stuff here and there so that's kind of where inspiration came from came from me so, so this was kind of out of my comfort zone because my commentaries are often written ahead of time and things like that so i had to go like on the spot here but and, and i thank you guys for bringing me on i really I'm, i really had a great time I don't know. I'm I'm interested to listen to because I think the short form podcast. I've never I've never really seen one or heard one before. But I definitely know that there are times where I feel like my attention span isn't isn't long enough to to sit through an hour and ninety minutes. So I think you you've got a niche market there. Well, if you like that show, one thing you can do to really help us out on the business end is to tell your friends, share our posts. Word of mouth is the lifeblood of a podcast trying to get noticed in the huge sea of shows out there. Or if you want to go above and beyond to help us out, go to whatever app you listen to your podcasts on and give us five stars. It doesn't really matter what you say, but it's those five stars. They just drive us up the charts and they just help us get noticed. And do us a favor and check out our website, www.iselectthisone.com. There you find links to all our podcast episodes as well as our social media. You can check us out on social media. We have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search I used to like this one. Look for our logo. I'm sure you'll find it. Check out all our content. Like our posts, comment, share with your friends. Let them know what's up. And then hopefully we'll have more people come listen to us. And you guys all can talk about it and be friends. And then you can tell us how you met friends on our website and our Facebook group. It'll be good times. Come join the I used to like this one community. And if you would like to be a producer of the show and get a shout out and donate to us, you can go to patreon.com slash I used to like this one and become part of our Patreon community. I used to like this one is created by, hosted by, and produced by Sean Wells and Colin Stewart. It is edited by Sean Wells, music by Lyndon Carter. Look for his band Carter and the Capitals anywhere you listen to music. Thank you for listening. And join us next week when we take a look at another movie on I used to like this one. Thanks for coming, Frank. Frank.